I'm reading from Luke chapter 24, verse 32 through 34. It says, And they said to one another, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us on the road, and while he opened the scriptures to us? So they rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem, and found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord is risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. You know, I can't think of an Easter in maybe recent memory for me where there was a bigger need for hope than right now in our country and world, for something that would breathe life into the human spirit. You know, because so many people who felt like they were on pretty solid ground, say, just months ago, find themselves in circumstances they never would have predicted. You know, a lot of people find they're feeling anxious. They've got pressures, maybe weights that they didn't have before just a few months ago. Some may be regretting decisions they've made this past uh, few months, and they wonder where things will stand a year from now. You know, nobody ever wants a season of hard times or challenge to come, do we? But when they do, they have a way of making you stand back and ask, what am I really counting on? Am I building my life on a foundation that's solid enough so that when circumstances beyond my personal control can't take it away? You know, adversity exposes the gap between who you are and who you thought you were. Boy, that's sobering. That's why I've been looking forward to this weekend, because this weekend we gather to remember the only hope capable of sustaining a human life through everything, through everything. People haven't gathered for the past 2,000 years to say the stock market has risen. It has risen indeed. They have not gathered to say the dollar has risen or the employment rate has risen or the GNP has risen or the value of your 401k has risen. No. See, here's the only hope that's held human beings across every continent and every culture and held us together for over 2,000 years in the face of crises and difficult times, also of poverty, of disease, of pain, of hardship, and even death itself. Christ is risen. And people always respond back with one additional word. Yeah, he has risen indeed. You know, in many debates about the resurrection, agnostic professors of liberal theology will say the resurrection didn't really happen. It was more a kind of a metaphor. The idea being that after Jesus died, his disciples found themselves still thinking about him and thinking about his teaching, still moved by his spirit, and they say that Jesus was only alive in their memories, and that over time, the idea of the resurrection kind of evolved as a symbol. This idea says that essentially, when you die, you die, and that's it. So the resurrection is really just kind of a metaphor for the human spirit or for human optimism, but it didn't really happen. Christ's body is still in the grave. He's only a metaphor. There was no resurrection. Now, of course, the problem with that 
is that something happened to galvanize a small group of people 2,000 years ago, and they did not gather, and they weren't transformed by the idea that Christ was risen metaphorically. Huh? They did not form the world's first community to include Jew, Greek, slave, free, male, female, rich, and poor to break down every ethnic and cultural barrier based on a metaphorical resurrection. You got to be dumb to do that. They did not sacrifice land and possessions, reputation, vocations, and positions based on a symbol. They didn't go to their death voluntarily by the thousands believing they would be resurrected metaphorically. They did it because they believe Christ is risen. He has risen indeed. It really happened. See, they understood all about death. They knew what it looked like. This Jesus they followed really died. And then three days later, the tomb was empty. Now, you might think at first that the body had just been moved, and at first, that's kind of what they thought too. But then they said the strangest thing happened. This same Jesus began to appear to people and to responsible people, to Mary Magdalene in the garden, to all of the disciples, and to a man who doubted, a man by the name of Thomas. Jesus came and appeared to him. Then within two decades of Jesus' death, the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Corinth saying that after Jesus was raised from the dead, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at once. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 6. It says, after that, after the resurrection, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Paul wrote on to say, the resurrection really happened, and you can go and ask these people. Now, folks, you don't write words like that unless the eyewitnesses have actually seen it and are alive to back it up. One indication of how seriously they took the reality of Jesus' death and resurrection is found in Mark chapter 15, verse 21. And we're told that Jesus buckled under the weight of carrying that cross. Then Mark says in verse 21, a certain man of Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and the Romans forced him to carry the cross. Now that's an odd little sentence, isn't it? Why would Mark bother to give the names of the children of the guy who helped Jesus carry his cross? Well, it was because they were still alive and were known to the audience to whom Mark is writing. So he's saying, hey guys, if you have questions about the death and resurrection, go ask them. They were there. They're alive. Now that's not the kind of a thing you'd do if you're writing a myth or if you're writing about a symbol. This is a different kind of literature. Jesus appeared to two of his followers on the road to Emmaus, and they were so awestruck, they said, didn't our hearts burn within us while he spoke with us? Then they took off and ran to the other disciples and said, it's true, it's true. 
The Lord has risen. And that's the phrase right there. It is true. That's the word indeed. It is true. And that's where it comes from. It's true. It really happened. It's not a metaphor. It's not a vague hope. It's not a saccharine illustration that's given to comfort children who lost a pet. There's only one explanation that accounts for the overnight transformation of an impoverished, confused, frightened little group of people that turned into a courageous, emboldened community that would sacrifice everything, including their lives, to turn a world upside down. And what was it? Well, it's the fact they actually believe this, that this Jesus, their teacher, their master, their savior, who they saw die on a cross, whose body they put in a tomb, did what he said he would do. He was who he claimed he was. The Lord is risen. He is risen indeed. It really happened, they said. Let me tell you what that means for you and me. For one thing, the resurrection means that now your worth doesn't fluctuate. I can count the number of people I've spoken with this past year who said things like, I'm worth 40% of what I was a year ago, Rick, or my net worth has dropped a quarter. Well, let me say, no, it has not, my friend. A year ago, you were worth the life of his son to God, and that's still what you're worth today, and that will still be what you're worth tomorrow. Imagine a few days after Easter, and the disciples, James and John, are talking with each other, and old John says to James, He is risen. The Lord is risen indeed. But my fishing business has dropped off 40%. I feel like such a failure. I'm not sleeping well. I'm anxious. I don't know when things are going to turn around. It might be years or months before the fish ever start biting again the way they used to bite. And you know, people are kind of saying that about this virus sweeping our country and the world. I I think James would have said, are you mad? He is risen indeed. And you're standing here telling me you can't sleep because of how many fish you're not catching. I have to tell you the truth. He has risen indeed. So who cares how the fish are biting? They're only fish and it's only money. He is risen indeed. And that means money does not get to define my identity. Money does not get to say how much I'm worth. Your job your vocation, your title, your position, how things are going up or down does not get to set your worth. Peter put it this way in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18 and 19. He says, for you know it was not with perishable things like silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but it was with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. See, it was not something that could be destroyed like silver and gold. You know, go ahead, earn a lot of it. It's going to be destroyed someday anyway. But it was the costly sacrifice of Christ, the shedding of His precious blood. That's the price that set you and me free. You know, maybe some of you have been beating yourself up this past few months or this past year because of something that's happened to your job or your bank account. Listen, 
you walk with your head hell wide. Let me tell you why to hold it high. Because to the God who created everything, to the God of this universe, you are worth more than every dollar, drachmat, euro, peso, rupee, ruble, pound, mark, and yen that's ever been printed. You are worth the life of God's Son. He died on a cross, He was resurrected, and He is risen indeed. You know, another thing the resurrection means for you and me is that your future is not at risk. No matter what happens, your future is not up for grabs. One of my favorite characters of world history was Winston Churchill. I just love this guy's sheer pugnacity. And one of Churchill's motto was, in war, resolution. In defeat, defiance. He once gave a commencement address during World War II to the school that he had attended as a boy. And he had been, you know, battling with Hitler for quite a while alone. And the whole text of his address was, never give up, never give up, never, never, never. You don't forget that. He had a famous running battle with a woman by the name of Lady Ashtor. She was a very difficult opponent. And no matter what she said, he'd always have a comeback for her. One time she said to him, Mr. Churchill, if you were my husband, I'd poison your coffee. And his response was, Lady Ashtor, if you were my wife, I'd drink it. <laughs> he was a tough guy, a real man. But even Winston Churchill could not defeat death. When he was an old man, he died. He planned his funeral, and at the end of it, after every word had been spoken, after the benediction had been pronounced, before the people left, Churchill had a bugler put high in the dome of St. Paul's Cathedral, and I've been there. The bugler began to play taps, which was the universal signal that the day is done the night has come. Well, there was silence. Everybody in that vast audience thought about this great life and how now it was over. But after the silence, there was one more bugler on the opposite side of the dome, and he began to play Reveille, the time to get up, the song announcing a new day. Now, why did he do that? Because one day the greatest man who ever lived said, I am the resurrection and the life. Churchill was a remarkable man, but Churchill never said, I am the resurrection and the life. Only Jesus said that. Will your future have some problems? Sure, of course your future will have some problems. And Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation. That's a guarantee. Is there a good chance you will die eventually? Ah, oh, there's a great chance that you will die eventually. Does that make Jesus nervous? Not at all. Why not? Well, he's already died. He's already taken on himself the worst that death can do and then rose from the grave. He is risen indeed. It really happened. Resurrection also means your past is not unforgivable. Your worth is established. Your future is not at risk. Your past is not unforgivable, no matter what you've done. There was an engineer about a century ago with General Electric. 
His name was Charles Steinmetz. He was a genius. He knew every detail of every part of every machine they operated. And when he retired, they were clueless on occasion about what to do when things broke down. They had depended so heavily on him. So they had a malfunction one time that no one could solve. So they had to call him in from retirement. So he looked at the machine for about two minutes, took out a piece of chalk, marked an X on the defective part so they could replace it, and then he went home. Five days later, they got a bill from Charles for $10,000. Now, that was a ton of money for five minutes of work back in the pre-stimulus package day. So the company asked him to itemize the bill. They thought that might get him. So a few days later, he sent them back a bill with two items, making a chalk mark a dollar, knowing where to mark it, $9,999. So who do you call when your life breaks down? Maybe your marriage falls apart, or you mess up as a parent, or you damage your child in some significant way. You violate your values. You handle anger in a way that's embarrassing to you. You get trapped in deceit. You get greedy, and it destroys your business. You get hooked on an addiction that ends up in personal humiliation. So who do you call? You call Jesus. The Apostle Paul said that just the right time, just at the right time, when we were still powerless and without hope, Christ died for the ungodly. That's you and that's me. Here's what he said. But God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Nothing you have ever done is beyond God's ability to cleanse and forgive. Why? Because Christ who died on a cross is risen indeed. Some of you need to hear this. The resurrection for you means the best is still yet to come. Wherever you have traveled, however old you are, you have not seen the best yet. If you are a resurrection person, a believer in Jesus, the best is yet to come. It's kind of funny, funny thing in our day, and we'll talk about in this culture almost anything, but we don't like to talk about death. We don't like to think about death. We don't even like to say the name death. Now, the name life, that's okay. I think we even have a cereal called life. Did you ever see a cereal called death? It's for people who like to wake up real slow in the morning. We buy life insurance. It's kind of odd, but what do you have to do to collect it? Oh, sorry, you have to die. You don't buy it in case you live, but nobody calls it death insurance. That would be depressing, huh? We don't know how to handle death. Ah, but Jesus does. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever lives by believing in me, by coming to me, by following me, by trusting me, by putting themselves in my hands, death is ultimately powerless over it. That's what the resurrection can mean to you. 
But how do you become part of God's resurrection plan? Well, there are really two ways. One, be perfect. God is perfect. No violence with Him in heaven. No more injustice there. No more greed. No more deceit. No more arrogance. No more deception. So one plan to get to spend your life eternally with God is be perfect. So as Dr. Phil says, and how's that working for you? Not so well, I would imagine. We need another plan. Now, people have a lot of misinformation about this. Some people are trying the good enough plan. You know, they want that when it comes to God. So they say, I believe there's a God. I believe there's life after death. I think the way to get in is just be good enough. If I just go to church enough, if I give uh, my offerings enough, if I volunteer enough, if I can just do more good things than bad things, then I'll be good enough to get in. But the problem is God is not a good enough kind of a God. He's a perfect God, and thank God He is. Heaven won't be a good enough kind of place. It's a perfect place. So the good enough plan isn't a good enough plan. Well, some people try the comparison plan. And the idea here is, I think God will judge us on the curve. And a passing grade will be just a few points below whatever my score is when he's grading everybody else. So your feeling of spiritual security is based on finding somebody who's worse than you. And that's pretty easy to do. If you're on the comparison plan, you are praying and hoping on Judgment Day. You're standing in line behind Adolf Hitler or Saddam Hussein or some other bad boy. And the reason? So I can look good by comparison. But what if you're not? What if you're standing in the line and in front of you is Mother Teresa? And God says, I'm sorry, Mother Teresa. You just weren't quite good enough to make the cut. Next. So God came up with another way. It's called the grace plan. I can't live a perfect life, and you can't either. Jesus did. He lived the perfect life, so he was in a position when he went to the cross to pay the debt that I could never pay for my own sin, to die the spiritual death I could never die. And so now, being loved, being forgiven, being restored is available just as a gift from God because of what Jesus did. And that's part of what the resurrection means. Here's the thing. You can know all of that and still miss it because there's one more step. And that is, how will you respond? Many years ago, one of my pastor friends, Tommy Barnett, his son Matthew decided to propose to his fiancée, Caroline, on top of the Empire State Building. Well, there was a lot of preparation and planning, but he got her up there with crowds of people. Then, to her surprise, he just shouted to her in the midst of the huge crowd that was watching, Caroline, will you marry me? And friends and family all jumped out from behind walls to cheer him on and celebrate. Oh, yeah, and Caroline said, yes. Now, what you need to know watching this broadcast is this is your moment. This shows us there is a blood-stained cross. There's an empty tomb. There is a rolled-away stone. There is a risen Savior. And God 
has done all of it. And in Jesus, God, like Matthew Barnett, falls to his knees and says to you and I, I will be your forgiver. I will be your guide. I will be your strength. I will be your friend. I will be your savior. I will never leave or forsake you. Will you say yes? Will you say yes? And maybe, just maybe, you've drifted a long way from God. Maybe circumstances piled up on you, but for whatever reason, you've drifted. You know, God says, I don't care how far it is. It's not farther than God can reach through Jesus. He's reached people a lot farther away from him than you or me. Maybe you come from some utterly different religious background. But this is not about a religious background. This is not about religion. This is about a relationship with Jesus Christ. And you can say yes, and what a great day this Easter weekend to do it. You can let go of fear or confusion or pride or sin or whatever it is that keeps people from this awesome God. And it's so simple. You can simply say right where you are, God, I want to commit my life to you. I want to receive your gift of eternal life through your son, Jesus Christ. I won't try to do the performance plan. I won't try to do the good enough plan. I give up on the comparison plan. I receive this gift of grace by faith. See, then it's not just Easter on the calendar anymore. It's Easter in you. Could we just bow for a moment of prayer wherever you are? This is a moment between you and God. Maybe Jesus is already part of your life. And you just want to say to him in this moment on Easter weekend, God, thank you. Thank you for the resurrection hope. Maybe, just maybe you've never responded to God before or you're not sure. Then this is your moment to say yes. God, thank you that in a fallen world, in an uncertain season, in a troubled time, Jesus Christ is risen. It really happened. It's good news for us, and we're so grateful. Thank you for the hope that is ours in Christ Jesus. For more information on Summit Christian Center, visit summitsa.com.